King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are the signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came before me. He was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The true tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field find shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men in my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the whole 
the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that the heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him for who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right 
and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I was reading this week about the most common words in popular songs of the last hundred years, as you do. Uh, Apparently, in the 1990s and the 2000s, the most common word in popular songs was you. In the 2010s, the most common word in popular songs is me. You could trace it back further. In the 1960s, the most common words are baby twist and twisting. And in the 1940s, the most common words are polka, serenade, boogie and blue. But the significant thing, I thought, was the shift from you to me. Isn't that indicative? Junaid Ahmed is 22. He takes around 200 selfies a day. He says he realises how negative social media can be and claims he doesn't take it too seriously. Years ago, I never used to look like this, he said. I used to be quite natural, but I just think with the obsession with social media, I need to upgrade myself. So I've had my teeth veneered, chin filler, cheek filler, jawline filler, lip filler, Botox under the eyes and on the head, tattooed eyebrows and fat freezing. Haven't we all? Listen to this advice in a book that was written 30 years ago for the hard-pressed executive. Repeat out loud these powerful affirmations. I can do great things. I have great possibilities deep inside me. You'll feel like a braggart, but read them out and then repeat them again and louder. Try this prayer three times every morning. I believe, I believe, I believe. This kind of prayer really flushes the negatives out of the brain. Now repeat, I can, I can, I can. Well, its appeal is obvious. It would be great, wouldn't it, to have all those negatives flushed out of our brains? So all you need to do is stand naked in front of the mirror and look at yourself and say, I love you. There have always been stories, haven't there, of people who are desperate for upbuilding and reassurance. Narcissus, he was one in ancient mythology who loved nobody till he saw his own reflection in the water. And then he fell in love with that. The king in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he's another, isn't he? Must be people with names beginning with the letter N. Here he is, full of himself, a proud man, as Narcissus was, of course, a vicious tyrant, and yet plagued, as we'll see, with the most disturbing dreams that I guess reveal his private self-doubt. The need that he had to pull himself up by his own shoelaces. Look down to verse 29 and see what he says as he walks around the roof of his palace Verse 29, and he says to himself in verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? It's the kind of thing a president might tweet, isn't it? And there's another king as well, King Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, who's somebody else who's full of himself. 
And that king drinks away his insecurities, masking his insecurity with an act of bravado. My ambitious task today is to look at these two stories that cover two chapters of Daniel, both chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 we've had read, and chapter 5 we're going to look at as well. Nebuchadnezzar is one king, Belshazzar is the second king. But actually I think these are one story of two kings. And for both of these kings, their position has gone to their head. And both kings, in their own way, are fronting up to this God. There is a direct encounter between them and the king of heaven. And I think by putting these two chapters together, the writer is asking us to compare and contrast. Look at these two kings. Look at what God does with them. Look at how God deals with them. What is going on in these two kings, in this one story? So let's look first at chapter 4. You'll see on the back of the service sheet there's uh, an outline of the two kings and the third king that we're going to consider. The first king then, chapter 4, the humbling of proud king Nebuchadnezzar. This tyrant who is desperate to have his self-esteem stroked hears voices. And we're left in no doubt that the voice that he hears is God. He hears a voice three times. The first voice comes in the dream. And the dream is of this massive tree. And then a messenger comes in verse 13. And in this dream he says, verse 14, cut down this huge tree. And we're told in verse 17 that this voice, this message, comes straight from God. It is God who is warning Nebuchadnezzar, my verdict to you, O great and mighty tree, is cut it down. Then there is a second voice, and this voice is the voice of Daniel, who arrives in verse 19 to explain the dream, but he brings the same message. In verse 24, he says, this too is the decree of the Most High. God is warning you, Nebuchadnezzar, strong and mighty tree, that he will cut you down to size. And then the third voice is in verse 31, a voice that falls from heaven. After he's ignored the voice of the dream, after he's ignored the voice of Daniel, both of which are the voices of God, the third voice he hears in verse 31 is directly from heaven saying, this is what I will do. Do you see that the king of heaven, which is the name that this chapter gives to God, he warns. And again he warns, and again he warns, that he will cut Nebuchadnezzar down. He will humble, proud King Nebuchadnezzar. As God warns us, not normally through dreams or voices from heaven, but by words, just the same, by his word, God speaks to warn every proud person on this earth. My in-laws live in Eastbourne, and when 
Uh, we've spent many holidays in Eastbourne, and when our children were younger, I can remember many walks on the cliff, and our children wandering off the path to have a look over the edge at the lighthouse. It was not unloving of us to shout, be careful, come away from the edge. If you go too close, you will fall over and die. When you know there is danger ahead, it is a very loving thing to warn, and that is exactly what God does to proud Nebuchadnezzar. He warns him of his judgment. He warns him that this proud king will be cut down to size. The king of heaven warns that he will judge and cut down the self-made man. That, I think, is the message of chapter 4. For all human beings are held accountable to God. We're not told when we will be held to account. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't told when he would be cut down to size. But he was told that he would be. We are told that we will be held to account. That every knee must bow. Everybody, anybody arrogantly enthroning themselves will have to move aside. What happens to proud King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, we're 12 months on, verse 29. He ignores the warning, and the most awful thing happens to him. He, his delusions, I suppose you could say, was that, were that he was more than human. He built his empire up, and so God gives him delusions that he's less than human. gets driven out from among men. He lives like an animal for seven periods of time. I don't know whether that's seven years, but a a substantial period of time. Verse 33. There he is, driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers And his nails were like birds' claws. The king of heaven humbles the proud. Until he comes to acknowledge that God is sovereign over his kingdom. Mighty though he was, he was humbled to acknowledge the mightier might of the king of heaven. Second story, the humbling of proud King Belshazzar in chapter 5. We've moved some years later, and this is now Nebuchadnezzar's son who is on the throne. But not there for much longer. If you look at the very end of the chapter, end of chapter 5, you'll see how differently this story will end, not with a man driven out until he acknowledges the might of the king of heaven. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar did humble himself before God and had his kingdom restored to him, in chapter 5, Belshazzar had an encounter with the same king of heaven and ignored him, and verse 30 is the result. Belshazzar was killed, and another king became king, and another empire was established. He is humbled against his will, and God brings his whole kingdom to its knees. 
And that verse at the end sort of hangs over the story of chapter 5 all the way through like the sword of Damocles suspended above the kingdom. This threat from the Persian army is there all the way through the chapter. The entire Babylonian dynasty which his father Nebuchadnezzar has established is about to end. The Persian army is camped outside. So what does Belshazzar do together to, to do? He gets all his cronies together and he says, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just look out your window, isn't it obvious? So the feast in chapter 5 is like a game of let's pretend. Belshazzar sets about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Because the writing is on the wall for him. Uh, literally in chapter 5. Because Belshazzar in verse 5 watches as a hand writes a terrifying message on the wall. This time the warning from the king of heaven is not spoken in a voice but written on a message. Perhaps only Belshazzar could see the hand and the writing but Nebuchadnezzar's wife, in other words Belshazzar's mother, uh, mother is still around. And in verse 10, she recognizes what is going on. It's a vision just like her husband had. When you see a king looking like this, as alarmed, going as white as a sheet, she's got long experience from her husband of what this means. And she says, do you know what you need? You need Daniel to come and tell you what's going on which is obvious all the way through the book of Daniel, that what the great and mighty need, what anybody needs if you want to understand what on earth is going on in the world, is to turn to God's people who know this stuff. Generally, that's why we have bishops in the House of Lords, isn't it? So that the great and mighty of our land can turn to God's people and say, explain to me what's going on in the world. That, I think, is the point of bishops in the House of Lords. But here is the message in verse 26. These words are written in the wall, on the wall, and it is another message of God's judgment on a proud Babylonian king. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You've been weighed in the balances. Your kingdom is divided and handed over. Again, just as in chapter 4, God is humbling those who walk in pride. But we have to go back to the start of chapter 5 to, to see why, to see what it was that Belshazzar was doing wrong. Why it is that the humbling of Belshazzar takes a different turn from the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. Why the bell tolls for Belshazzar in the way that it didn't for Nebuchadnezzar. And if Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 was desperate to have his ego stroked is not this great Babylon which I've built up. Belshazzar was defiant. And what he is doing in this feast as the Persian army are besieging the city, what he is doing there is deliberate contempt for the faith of his father Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know whether you noticed as chapter 4 was read out, but it is the whole chapter is an edict. It is written to be read out, pronounced in public. A public declaration from King Nebuchadnezzar 
to tell everybody about his newfound faith, how it is that he has come to put his trust in the king of heaven, how he now praises and honors him. So now look at chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Because as Belshazzar calls his cronies in for a, a drink, a drinking party, verse 3, they bring in the golden vessels that have been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. These goblets, you see, come from Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar took them to Babylon right back at the beginning of the story in chapter 1, where he ransacked Israel's city and he stole these holy symbols of Israel's worship of God. And Nebuchadnezzar just put them in the loft, stored them away. How do you think Nebuchadnezzar with his newfound faith at the end of chapter 4, would have thought, as Belshazzar in chapter 5 says, bring out those glasses. After he came to realize that the king of heaven rules on earth, I can't think he would want to use those goblets as ordinary wine glasses anymore, would he? But Belshazzar does. He brings them out of the loft, unpacks them out of their boxes, puts them on the table, fills them with wine and toasts his pagan god. It's a deliberate act, isn't it, to say, you know, dad's god, Nebuchadnezzar's god, the one that he came to acknowledge was mighty. I don't think he's anybody. He's a nobody. Belshazzar is utterly contemptuous. Look what Daniel says to him in verse 22. Chapter 6, verse 22. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 22. I'll get the right chapter. Here we go. Chapter 5, verse 22. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this story about Nebuchadnezzar. You've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your wives and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which don't see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honoured. And that is why God's warning is verses 26, 27, and 28. And the judgment falls as the dynasty falls in verse 30. Now, what these two stories have in common is a question. Will these two mighty men, these two great kings... These two emperors of huge superpowers, will they recognize the greater authority of the king of heaven? Will they recognize who they are in relation to God? Will they be wise? In recent years, with all the celebrations of our queen's long reign, who who was it that put her on the throne? Why did she become queen? Well, of course, she became queen because her father died. But more significant than that, she became queen because God put her on the throne. 
The prayer the Church of England prays for the Queen is for her knowing whose authority she hath. Namely, God's authority. He put her there. And that is what God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, that the foreigner's God, the foreigner's weak-seeming God, the God that you ridiculed when you went into their land and dragged Israel out, he is the one who gave you authority. Because actually these two chapters tell one story, not of two kings, but of three. The third sovereign is actually the king of heaven. And the message of these two chapters is, be wise before the king of heaven. Look what Nebuchadnezzar comes to realize in chapter 4, verse 34. I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the truth about the God of heaven. But here, I think, is the problem of these chapters, isn't it? What kind of a God is this? What kind of a God does this kind of thing to people? In Shakespeare's King Lear, faced with a, a similar psychotic illness, one character says, As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Naughty little schoolboys, girls, you won't know this about boys, but naughty little schoolboys delight in pulling a wing off a blue bottle and watching it fly around in circles, and then one leg and then another leg, just to watch the fly in its agony be unable to take off or land or do anything useful. Is that what God is like here? Like a wanton boy and a fly? playing with Nebuchadnezzar vindictively, scaring Belshazzar half to death just for the fun of it. You know, you call it humbling, but actually it's humiliating, isn't it? Pushing them into submission. Nebuchadnezzar concludes in verse 35, all the peoples he accounts as nothing. Is that how God sees us, really, as nothing? I think the first thing to say is that what God did in Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5 are one-offs, that these things happened. But the fact that they happened here like this is not necessarily a model for always and everywhere. But it is saying that God will humble the proud patiently with repeated warnings, but he will do it. Either now or ultimately, finally, in the judgment of which he warns. The phrase at the end of chapter 4 is right at the heart of the two stories. Look down to chapter 4, verse 37. Those who walk in pride, he, the king of heaven, is able to humble. For we do not rule heaven and we do not rule earth. It's not all about me, 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 
And God is making that point, not just for the benefit of his people, but for the benefit of the whole world. It does not all revolve around you. In the early 16th century, a Polish mathematician formulated a radical theory. And everything changed after Copernicus demonstrated that the sun was at the center of the solar system and not the earth. And we humans similarly lead a Copernican revolution to recognize what has always been the case and always will be the case. Namely, we are not at the center of the universe. I may try to put myself on the throne. I may try to run my own life my own way without God. But the sun is at the center of the universe. God has put his son on the throne to rule forever. He is the living ruler of the world and not me. And the king of heaven humbles the proud. Sometimes gently, sometimes painfully, sometimes over years, sometimes at a stroke, sometimes in the now, sometimes later, but always graciously, for he wants us to know what is what. He wants us to know him as the king of heaven that he is. And I want to suggest that the big message of Daniel, and these two chapters right at the middle of the book make this point clear, I think. The big message is, since this is who God is, and since you have been allowed to see his rule over Nebuchadnezzar, over Belshazzar, since God gives Daniel a glimpse behind the curtain and given him understanding of how things are, and since God, through Daniel writing this book down, has given us understanding, us too, a glimpse behind the curtain of what is what, since we know all this, we should live logically. There's an appropriate way to live, if this is true. There's a fitting way to organize yourself. There is a, a logical response to this. You wouldn't back the people who want to rebuild the Tower of Babel, would you? The tower that makes them great. Not when you know that there is one to whom those who build the Tower of Babel must give account. Before whom they will stand, the one who has all power and authority. And the Bible's word for that living logically is wisdom. Wisdom isn't, in the Bible, isn't about being clever, though it is about knowing stuff. It's closer, I think, to what we mean when we talk about godliness. Living in response to all that God has done and said. In response to his character, humbly, in the light of what he's revealed to us. And we hold on to what he's revealed, firmly, alongside what we know and experience and see all around us in this world. Wisdom comes from God making it clear that he is the king of heaven. That we are not at the center of everything, but the sun is. And when you can see how the pieces fit together, when God's revealed that to us, when we can see how everything will be at the end, when it's all finished, live logically or be wise. 
at the funeral of Louis XIV in Notre Dame in full view of the open coffin. I don't know if you've been to Notre Dame, if you can picture the scene there. An open coffin, Louis XIV. The preacher began his sermon with the shout, Only God is great. Only God is great. That must have been an electric moment, don't you think? Our pride is perhaps not like Nebuchadnezzar's, maybe not like Belshazzar's, but we've got our own little empires, haven't we? Something that we've built up. A family, perhaps. A home life. A career. A lifestyle. We, we've built it into something which, if we're honest, it works for us, doesn't it? It's something about which our mummy and daddy can feel proud and about which we therefore feel proud. We look at ourselves in the mirror. We survey our successes very like Nebuchadnezzar does in chapter 4, verse 30, don't we? Is not this the life I've built for myself? We take pride in our children. We take pride in our position. If I'm honest, I often take something down from the shelf which I've had a hand in and I admire it. When I speak somewhere, for example, of course I want to do it for God's glory, but I like seeing my name in the program. And even if I spiritualize my success and my prosperity as, as God being pleased with me or using me or whatever, that's pride, isn't it? I was talking to my brother not that long ago and we were admitting to each other we don't need to pray if if we're completely honest, that's the bottom line. We, we think we can do it, we can manage. By and large, we're competent, we've got our lives to work for us. We think we don't need to pray. Do not realize it will all pass. You will pass. You only need one wire in your car to burn out and you can spend eight hours sitting beside the road waiting for the A to come and sort you out. You only need one little vote about Brexit and the share price of your company falls to the floor. You only need one hostile little organism to take up root in your body and the test results are desperate. And at the end, the bottom line, we'll all die. God does that to show us we are no different from the animals. We come to death as they do. You will pass. It will pass. Nebuchadnezzar passed. He's now confined to room 55 in the British Museum. That's what happened to all that he surveyed in verse 30. Possibility thinking may not be the technique we use. We may sneer at the selfie generation. But being like Narcissus is common, isn't it? Full of ourselves, with us at the center. I can do great things. I can, I can, I can. And proud people like me are the proud whom the king of heaven humbles. Whether I am as militantly anti-God as can be, or as committed a Christian as you could imagine, that Copernican revolution is something I need every day, isn't it? I do not rule heaven and I do not rule earth. 
Live logically, be wise, live in the light of this truth. Chapter 4, verse 37. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 